0: Welcome to the One God Report Podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Keegan Chandler, author of the recently published book called Constantine and the Divine Mind, The Imperial Quest for Primitive Monotheism. We left off our last episode with Mr. Chandler describing how Constantine was associated with events that led to the important Church Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Now we rejoin the conversation with Mr. Chandler about to describe the significance of the Greek word homoousios, which means something like same substance or same essence. Christian theologians to this very day describe Jesus as being the same essence with God the Father. However, the idea does not come from the Bible. So where does it come from? Let's find out as we continue the conversation.
1: The council is called, that would happen in 325. And there are a lot of angles to the very rich and complicated and dramatic history of the Council of Nicaea. I think, though, the best way probably to approach that history and what happened, especially Constantine's involvement there, is around this word homoousios. In the official Nicene Creed that was ultimately ratified there and signed on to by a majority of the bishops and approved by Constantine, it says that the father and the son are homoousios. That's often translated same substance or of one substance or consubstantial. This, to this day, has often been seen as the axis on which Christian theology turns. This is the building block. In fact, it's often described as you know the building block or a foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, which would develop much later.
0: Mm -hmm. Can I interrupt you just one second? Yes. Because it is interesting that in light of all that you've just said, Constantine believes that a monotheism will be the solution to the empire's problems, cultural, social, political, military, et cetera. The Nicene Creed, it's not Trinitarian, but it is a bit of a fork in the road from just singular monotheism. I'm looking at it right now. I, it starts out, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. Okay, so there's your monotheism, right? But then, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, the same essence as the Father, there's your same Usius. But is that the problem? Is they've got another figure here now? They've got Jesus Christ trying to figure out how he's going to fit into their monotheism?
1: Well, that's that was the dispute between Arius and Alexander, and probably more importantly, Alexander's uh, deacon Athanasius, very fiery and even violent character. But that was the question. Arius wanted to say that this second figure, which all Christians believe in, this Jesus figure, that he represented a completely distinct subordinate and created being, who only came into existence a finite time ago, whereas some others seemed to want to identify the the Father and the Son together. Others wanted to say, well, at least the Son was eternal alongside of God. He didn't come into existence at a certain point of time, but he wasn't necessarily identical to the one God. There were a variety of views, and Constantine, I think, would have been a-okay with a variety of views existing. As he said, he said, can't you all just agree on the basics and agree to dig- agree, disagree? But the controversy became so sharp that it now had to be dealt with. And I believe that some of Constantine's own theology, his own personal views now had to be sharpened. And I actually make a an argument that Constantine ultimately when he signs on to and approves this creed, he actually means something very different than many of the other bishops did. Hmm. So let's, maybe we can talk about this word homoousios and what he was trying to do with it. Because again, I argue his prize, his goal is unity and unity around monotheism. So what's with this, like you said, a fork in the road, kind of a a word uh, inserted here. In my research into the history of this word, is very much standing on the shoulders of Christopher Stead and P.F. Beatrice and others regarding the origin of this word. The word first emerges not in what we would call Orthodox or small-c Catholic Christian circles. The word first emerges in Hermetic literature. I mentioned Hermeticism earlier as a Greco-Egyptian philosophical religious tradition which I believe was also one expression of this solar monotheism popular in the Roman Empire. And in one of the foundational tractates of the Hermetic tradition, the text called Poimandris, this text dates at the latest to the 1st century CE, in this Hermetic tradition and in this text, we find something that is eerily similar to the Nicene Creed you encounter this doctrine in which there is a one God. It's called God the Father. And this God, the Father, has a son who's called the Logos. Hmm. And they are distinguished as two entities. They're two deities, but they both possess the same divine perfection. And the Logos proceeded from the Father, the text says that they're homoousios. So this word in this text specifically worked to describe the father and son's relationship as one of kindred substance. Now, remember, this is a pagan text. It's nothing to do with Christianity, but it sounds very similar to the creed that you just read, Mm. which, like you said, is not a Trinitarian creed. The creed that you read, there's no consubstantiality and co-eternality of the third person, the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity would not... Develop fully until the last quadrant of the fourth century. Mm-hmm. So the next question becomes how do we know that Constantine was aware of this text or that this had anything to do with what he or anybody's thinking in Icaea? I should first ask the question why would it matter if Constantine knew it? And that's because Eusebius tells us that Constantine is the one who inserted the word homoousios, he insisted on this phrase. That this was the definition of the father and son that he wanted everyone to rally around. So that's why we need to ask then, well, where did he draw it from? And I and others would argue that he drew it from his Hermetic background. If we look at the writings of his religious advisor, Lactantius, Lactantius was close to Constantine. In fact, Constantine eventually hired him to be the tutor of his own sons. And Lactantius was also, as a Christian, He was interested in a universalizing monotheism. He was actually worked in Diocletian's court, uh, believe it or not. And he was busy, even before Constantine came to power, he was busy defending Christianity against philosophical detractors like the philosopher Porphyry and others. And what Lactantius was trying to do was to try to find common ground between paganism and Christian theology. And Lactantius appears to have found a great example of a common ground between these two worlds in the hermetic monotheism. Mm. Lactantius quotes from this Poimondris treatise at least 14 times in his book, The Divine Institutes, which he rededicated to Constantine. And when both Lactantius and Constantine are speaking about how the Logos was generated by God the Father, they evidence a very hermetic interpretation of Plato. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there was a tradition at that time that Plato himself had lived in Egypt, and some said that he even learned his teaching from Hermes, the central figure of Hermeticism. So to pick back up on our story about Homoousius at the Council, this Hermetic word, Homoousius, seems to have traveled into the Christian world by way of the Christian Gnostics, and ultimately it found its way into the Christological debates of the third century, where we find that the word was actually banned by the Christians. Mm -hmm. A major Catholic council in Antioch in uh, 268 banned the word homoousios. That's very, very important because Christians, Catholic small C Orthodox Christians tended to shy away from this word so much so that they banned it. To them, it communicated something material something that shouldn't be used to describe God. Mm. And so they said, let's ban this language. And so what we have then is this word that has this very unchristian history, this shadow kind of hanging over it, a heretical shadow, a pagan, hermetic, and Gnostic shadow. But here comes the word emerging as the ultimate definition of the relationship between the Christian God and his son at the Nicene Creed, Mm. still now repeated, over and over in churches around the world. How in the world does that happen? Well, mm. Constantine is ultimately the best answer for how that happens. It was inserted at his request. Maybe your listeners are interested in this word homoousios and why and how Constantine inserted it. I gave a presentation, and I think that was maybe 2018 or so, called "A Homoousios Origins, Intentions, and Aftermath, and your viewers can see that online.
0: Yeah, well, I can find a link for it. let me, Let me just ask you this before we leave this word. How do you think that Constantine still preserved his monotheism with this sure. word by saying the son is the same substance as the father?
1: So what's important to note, this is very, very important. At Nicaea, there is a creed drafted, but I argue not a theology, not A universally agreed upon Christology. The goal was to, on the one hand, please the emperor, on the other hand, to oust this troublemaker, Arius. Now, Mm -hmm. Arius, before the council even started, he writes a letter expressing his public rejection of Mm Homoousius to his bishop Alexander. Now, why did he do that? Because uh, if you read the letter, Arius assumes. That the word homoousios is something which both he and his theological opponents can mutually condemn because this was a well known property of the Manichaean Gnostics. So Mm -hmm. he says, you know, it's not like I'm saying that the Father and Son are homoousios or anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, how is it then that all of these guys can sign on to the creed? You have people signing on to the creed containing this word who we know have completely different Christologies. You have Athanasius, Eusebius of Caesarea, Marcellus. These guys have completely different theologies. In fact, in subsequent councils, they're all anathematizing each other. So how is it that they can all sign on to this creed? The only way to interpret that is that the word had multiple meanings, even at the council, and that everybody was interpreting this word in his own way read the letters of Eusebius of Caesarea when he's writing back to his presumably angry and disappointed constituents over why he agreed to use this nasty word. When you read Eusebius, he gives you an explanation of Constantine's own justification Hmm. for the word. And if you read it very carefully, you will see that Constantine has actually, I argue, a Christology that seems to line up much more with the condemned Arius, who refused to sign it, than he does with Athanasius or Marcellus or someone like that, who also signed it. Just like Constantine expected the bishops to all get on board, he was doing the same and creatively reading the creed in such a way that it fit with his view. I actually believe, contrary to most people, that Constantine has a subordinationist view, that he does not believe that the Son is eternally co-equal with the Father, eternally existent alongside the Father. But if you read Eusebius' description of Constantine's justification, he seems to say that Constantine believed that the Son existed in virtue with the Father, And that God has always been a father in the sense that God has always been the father of all of us and of everything. So there's a concern there to preserve the immutable God of Platonism. And there's a concern uh, of Constantine to agree in some sense with the official creed that the son is eternal. But I think that he privately is holding his own view of two gods. Just like Eusebius is, he also has this view of two gods. And when you read the Nicene Creed, as you did for us earlier, you can read it that way, in which there is one God, the Father, and then alongside of him, there is this God from God. It's a second God. And Mm -hmm. so that's not the way everybody read it, but I think it's the way that Constantine privately read it. Because again, the intention was to get everybody on the same page, officially. And for the good of the empire, because he wants the empire to get on board with his program of monotheistic unification and not to be bickering over these trifles and details.
0: So when is the analogy used of the ray of light to the sun? It's the same substance. Is this Constantine's idea at all? Can he preserve his monotheism in that way?
1: Well, a lot of people had been saying things like this, and for a long time, you know, around the 4th century BCE, Platonic thought emerges, which envisions this transcendent one, and from there you have a host of Platonisms, which envision an ultimate transcendent one, and various emanations, including the Logos, which comes out of this principle, it's an organizing principle, and the Logos is what organizes the world of the senses. And so you would have Platonists that would sometimes describe the Logos or other principles as rays emanating out from a radiant sun or the one. And the popularity of these ideas would eventually be assumed by sun worshipers in the Roman Empire, and could be used to philosophically justify a pluralism in which a great one god emanates out many gods like the rays of the sun. In fact, I would say that by Constantine's time, Neoplatonism had gone a long way in helping people to philosophically justify religious diversity and pluralism within the empire. So that solar imagery was bound up with philosophical emanationism. And that sort of emanationism is exactly what we see in both Gnostic traditions like the Hermetic tradition, as well as many of the Christologies we see represented in Nicaea. And so, the foundation of both the kind of solar monotheism Constantine would have been interested in, of Hermeticism, and of the Christianity represented by many of the bishops, the foundation of all of those is Platonism, which, yes, had long used the uh, the imagery of a sun and its rays. Hmm. You
0: know, Kagan just as we're talking, at- strikes me how unbiblical the whole conversation is by this time some 300 some years after Jesus they've just gone off the rails in a sense with all these other influences be they from Egypt or Greece and they're discussing things that have absolutely nothing to do with the scripture the scriptures say that Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is a human being born of a woman that he grew up that he was put to death that he died He was raised from the dead by God. They just have wandered off. Such a non-biblical conversation. Let's go on. Another thing that you talk about in your book is that you give evidence that Constantine considered himself, and I guess others like Eusebius of Caesarea shared this understanding, that Constantine was a special agent chosen by God. You mentioned he even prepared a tomb for himself in a church there called the Church of the Twelve Apostles. But right. it's not like he felt himself to be another apostle, but that he was even more important than the apostles, somewhat on par with Jesus Christ himself. Yes, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, I do. I do make that argument uh, in the book. According to Eusebius, Constantine had originally announced the building of a church in honor of the twelve apostles, and he set up these tombs these reliquaries for their bones and he even reportedly even gathered some of them i'm not sure how genuine the, these relics were but he reportedly gathered up some of their bones and was going to fill all of the bones in this church for all the 12 apostles and but later constantine reveals that he himself had intended to be buried alongside of them and he had set up a uh, a 13th reliquary for himself well of course his was probably more than a reliquary it's probably a very beautiful coffin and now if you read Eusebius, he says, yeah, you know, all of this was designed to suggest that Constantine was the 13th apostle, that he should be placed among them as somebody great. Now, a lot of Christians today would probably say, wow, how dare this guy imagine that he was on the same level of the apostles. But I think it's even more than that. <laughs> mm. Like you said, mm. there is uh, there's one scholar. J. McGuckin, he argued recently that the way that this tomb was allegedly arranged, this church was destroyed long ago.
0: So was it in know. Constantinople or Rome?
1: Yes. Yeah, you know, no, it's in, in his city.
0: In Constantinople. And yes.
1: But he argues that the way that he had arranged himself suggested that he was supposed to be on the level of Jesus. Mm. Uh, because of how it was situated at their head and that Eusebius had only tried to deflect the concern that people had over this by saying, well, he actually just thought he was an apostle. Remember, Eusebius is an apologist for Constantine. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think, wow, well, how dare this guy? What does he think he's Jesus? Again, the more that you... Read all of this data through the meta-narrative that I discussed earlier, this quest for monotheism, the more it starts to make sense from his perspective. Both Lactantius and Eusebius and Constantine, they seem to communicate that Jesus, who again was an embodiment of God's logos, that Jesus had been on a mission to revive monotheism on the earth. You can read the Lactantius Divine Institute where he talks about this. These guys say that Jesus had been commissioned by God to bring back this monotheism, but of course he got killed and kind of put a stop to that. And so Constantine, therefore, is the guy who is divinely commissioned to pick up where Christ left off. He is participating in the same revelation, the same mission of Jesus in the present age. And so I see that Constantine just simply continued to think of himself as taking part in, but really in fulfilling Jesus' mission to establish the true religion. So it's only fitting, right? I mean, he's the new embodiment of the Logos. Eusebius, he's in many ways writing for the pleasure of the emperor, and he's reflective of a lot of his sensibilities. And he sees this grand plan that God has had over centuries to benefit the human race, and that Constantine is kind of like the crown jewel of this program. It's amazing. Eusebius says that God had given gifts. He had given two gifts to mankind. The first one was monotheism, which was partially renewed by Jesus' ministry, and the other gift was the Roman system, was the Roman Empire. So it was through this germ of monotheism rekindled by Jesus and passed through and supported by the Roman state. This was how God was going to banish these doctrines of demons, how he was going to lead all nations into the Golden Age. So in that context, it makes sense that Constantine would see himself on the level of Christ. Eusebius even says that Constantine was an embodiment of the Logos, just like Jesus.
0: Is that right? They're yes. That and
1: that, you know, the barbarians and all the nations of the world are kind of enlightened and transformed into the children of God through the radiance of the Logos, right? Which is embodied in in Constantine. I mean, this is this is big stuff. So yeah, people are shocked that Constantine would imagine himself to be on the rank of the apostles. They should, Read uh, Eusebius and they'll be in for a real shot.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember you quoted Eusebius saying that Constantine brought about the promised kingdom in the Bible, fulfilling hmm. scriptures like Psalm 72 8, which says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. But a guy like me sitting back here right now sees a claim like that, and I think to myself, you know, they should have flipped a few more pages in the Bible because <laughs> the promised king is a descendant of David. This is spoken of Solomon, 72:8, and a descendant of David. The only divinely ordained monarchy on the earth is the Davidic monarchy. So yeah. I wish they would have flipped a few more pages of the scripture.
1: <laughs> well, you make a good point though, about how it's easy for us to sit back and kind of say, wow, that's that's insane. But, you know, I was in Rome, I guess this was at the beginning of 2019, I noticed that there were Christian symbols absolutely everywhere. All of these places that had once been used to worship the pagan gods, even places of torture and death like the Colosseum, they were now covered in crosses. Many of them had been transformed into churches, and it was really staggering to see and to think about what would have appeared to be an absolute intervention of God, that here we are one minute getting persecuted. Mm-hmm. And the next moment, the emperor is a worshiper of, of the true God. Like, wow, what a change, what a miracle. Surely this must be the hand of God himself coming in. You, it would be easy to, to put all those pieces together mm-hmm. um, in the context of the extent of Roman rule and how much of the world at that time they controlled. And it could just easily look like it had all been set up and ordained that way. And with somebody as, I'll say, excitable as Eusebius, you know, he can really get carried away with some of this stuff. But he really, he makes an argument. And it's interesting because the way that he is speaking about Constantine's, you know, fulfillment of these promises it almost seems like he's expecting some opposition or had already had some opposition to this kind of blissful picture, you know, because he says, you know, look, he says, look, it's, it's obvious. The entire world is one orderly and united family. The the oracles of the prophets have now been fulfilled. And then he challenges his readers. He says, he's like, I dare you, you know, open your eyes. This is the truth. This is not words. This is from facts. Look at this. You can see it says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea from the rivers to the ends of the earth, right? And he says, you know, anybody who dares to doubt this, that Constantine has brought this about, you must have slanderous lips. Hmm. This is very political. For Decebius, he envisions Constantine as a king, even in heaven. He seems to transcend the kind of normative reward that Christians will get in the afterlife. And instead says, I don't have the the quotation in front of me, but he seems to be granted a a certain kingship forever. Now, I do not believe that Eusebius thinks that Constantine has replaced Jesus. What kind of Christian could ever say that? Even somebody as, again, I'll use the word excitable uh, as Eusebius. But he does see Constantine as having a central and key role in God's plan for the planet Earth. And for his work, he is to be rewarded. So I think that he would see that just like God was with Christ, that God was with Constantine as part of his program, and therefore should receive a just reward. Hmm.
0: Keegan, I got to ask you this one. I lived in Israel for quite a while, and everybody there, we all know that Constantine's mother, Helena, came to called the holy land and she purportedly discovered a piece of wood of the true cross which of course is ridiculous but this was the claim and she commissioned the building of at least three churches commemorating or in the location of three significant events associated with the life of jesus the birth of jesus in bethlehem and the death and burial and resurrection of jesus in jerusalem the so-called Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and she built another one on the Mount of Olives commemorating the Ascension. I'd like to get your idea why. Why do you think that is?
1: Yes, like you said, it's very well known that Constantine sent Helena, his mother, on this pilgrimage, and there are different ideas out there regarding why this pilgrimage was commissioned. There is one particularly interesting version And it's that he felt bad. He was atoning for maybe some of his recent actions that he had to take within his family. It's well known that Constantine had some of his family members put to death. In fact, he killed a long list of family members, usually in political disputes over who was going to be the the emperor. Mm. But particularly... He killed his wife, Fausta, and his favorite son, Crispus, and the fact of that has just really mystified historians for a long time. The whole episode is very murky. Some people wonder if there was some kind of love triangle involved, or maybe a quest for power, or maybe Fausta had lied about Crispus and caused Constantine to kill him, and now... Constantine out of anger, kills Fausta. It's very murky. But naturally, these killings would have probably had some sort of effect on Constantine. And some have speculated that his decision to send his mother Helena on her famous pilgrimage may have had something to do with that, that he wanted to sort of do something great for God, or give back to the church, or maybe he even wanted to prove his sincerity in light of the fact that he had put his family members to the sword. So, something like that. Mm. Now, I'll make this final note about Helena. It's well known that she also is a Christian. And some of your listeners who have maybe looked into these things may have come across the idea that Constantine became a Christian under her influence, that she was already a Christian and led him to Christianity. And maybe that was the reason why Constantine decided to stop the Christian persecution suddenly in 306. That's because Helena was already a Christian, but I think this is extremely unlikely and the most comprehensive scholarly investigations of Helena and her life have concluded that we should date her conversion after the year 12 at some point. So it's much more likely I think that Helena converted under the influence of Constantine and uh, not the other way around. Mm.
0: Okay. It must have really bothered people at this time that Jesus was a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) I know they didn't uh, emphasize it. And I don't think Constantine really liked the Jews, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's correct. Well, if you think about it, it was very popular as I've mentioned, to believe that God sent Jesus. And one reason was to restore this monotheism and the teachings of the, of the one true God to the earth. But that mission had been cut short. And who it had been cut short by was, of course, the Jews. <laughs> Forget the Roman participation. This was the Jews. And so I actually address this in the book, right? If Constantine wants to restore monotheism, monotheism without idols you know why not why not the jews well because in in his mind the jews were disqualified from being this vehicle for restoration because they had put the logos to death right so it's definitely not going to be them so yes you're right and there's a, a lot of people have have written a lot of things about constantine's relationship with the jews there's a, a whole book about it by a james carroll called constantine's sword if people are interested Hmm.
0: Let me just ask you one last question, Keegan. So, Constantine was some kind of a Christian. What is his version of Christianity? Amazing that to this guy is it attributed the same essence of God the Father and so called God the Son. It's to this guy. That should send a shiver down the spine of any truth seeking Christian. But w- what is his Christianity?
1: Well, it's very complicated. And- In our discussion, we haven't talked very much about Constantine's conversion, but the book really is just as much focused on the question of his conversion as it is what he thought about God. What I see in Constantine's life is not this sort of older paradigm and the psychology of religious conversion, which sees conversion as something immediate that happens, something born of extreme guilt, But rather, Constantine's journey seems to resemble what we call a contemporary paradigm in the psychology of religious conversion, in which a subject experiences a long series of changes and gradually converts, gradually comes to a realization which results in in major change. I see much more a gradual event and not the very popular version reported by Eusebius and Lactantius that... In the year 312, Constantine had a vision, and suddenly he became a Christian. I think that's a very propagandist version of that. I see that he is on a journey of discovery. He's on a quest, as I've described it. And at the end of his life, it's clear that he becomes officially a Christian. It's very well known that he's baptized on his deathbed. He became ill, and he's traveling. He's passing through Nicomedia. He's trying to get back to Constantinople to be buried in his beautiful tomb, and yet he is not able to continue that far and is ultimately baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is an Arian and who would later become a tutor to Constantine's Arian children. Again, these Arians who allegedly Constantine was at war with and wanted to kick them out. So we have to be careful when we're answering and asking this question of was Constantine a Christian. As historians, we should say that, yes, he was a Christian, and we can argue about when that change took place. Again, I think it was not in 312, but he was a syncretist the whole of his career in a long and gradual process that ultimately culminated in the decision to change his official posture before his death. But I think it would be unfair and inappropriate to try to prohibit him from occupying the category of Christian based on the data because of our own religious biases As theologians and as fellow Christians, we can, of course, make judgments on whether or not we feel Constantine had correct or proper or biblical views. And from there, someone might suggest that this view or that view is incongruent with biblical or historical teaching, that therefore he should not be considered as a Christian. But even then, it would depend on which version and which interpretation, which historical school of Christian thought we're trying to line him up with. So Mm I'm not trying to overcomplicate things, but it's really a complicated question It's really a set of questions. Maybe we should ask whether I think his version of Christianity is reflective of what the New Testament teaches. You alluded earlier that there's a lot of non-biblical stuff going on. Well, I believe personally that the New Testament teaches what is called a Unitarian monotheism, that the one God is the Father. Jesus is subordinate. He's a created human being who this one God anointed and exalted as the Messiah and as the mediator for mankind. So do I think that Constantine's theology lines up with that? Well, Constantine, he has a subordinationist Arian type of Christology in which Jesus is not personally and literally eternally existent alongside of God. He's not identified and dissolved into the one God. So in a way, that's close to what the Bible says. It's much closer than your typical Trinitarian or Orthodox theology. But I think he's certainly wrong about the personal pre-existence and the emanation of the logos from the being of God before creation. Hmm. That's not clearly taught in the Bible, uh, despite what you may hear in most popular readings offered by Christians about the prologue of the Gospel of John.
0: Yeah. And to me, that's a real big problem because it's really a denial that Jesus is a human person. As soon as you have a preexistent logos, some kind of same substance as God, the Father pre-existing, that's the person. It's a denial that Jesus of Nazareth is a human person. right? And to me, biblically, that's dangerous,
1: yes. Well, even in the early centuries of the Christian movement, you have certain groups which are very interested in Jesus, but which are in some degree, replacing a human person, Jesus, with a divine being. Mm -hmm. And this really comes to a head in the second century in the conflict with the so-called Gnostic Christian groups who are battling against these more small-c Catholic leaders, like Justin Martyr, for example. But Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century, he himself has already taken on a Platonic lens through which he is viewing the biblical texts, in which he cannot help but see this second being who is identified with the logos of Platonism. And so already there is a disinterest very early on in this Jew and an interest in a metaphysical emanation of God in the heavens who has come down and taken on human nature. Yes, that I think that is not something to be located in the New Testament. So, just to sum all this up, I think that my book helps to clarify a lot of things. First of all, when did Constantine turn to the Christian religion? Second, why did he do this? How did the reasons for that turn manifest in his religious policies? Was he sincere, or was he just a pretender? And This final question of, did he ever convert to Christianity? Was he really a Christian? I think how satisfied you are with my book's answer to this last part will depend very much on what you think Christianity was back then, what it is right now in the Mm -hmm. world, and perhaps additionally what you think Christianity ought to be.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Keegan, thank you very much. Keegan Chandler, author of, first of all, I mentioned the God of Jesus in light of Christian dogma. It's really a standard biblical Unitarian work. And now, the book we've been discussing Constantine and the Divine Mind The Imperial Quest for Primitive Monotheism. Keegan, thanks a lot.
1: Bill, I had a great time. Thanks so much.
0: This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. So, listeners, what do you think? Was Constantine an agent of God? or a representative of Jesus the Messiah? Or was Constantine and his ideas about homoousius, that the Father God and Jesus were the same substance, is that a proclamation of a different Christ, a replacement Christ, an antichrist,